Hello and welcome to In Conversation with Lisa Burke. Today I am very glad to be introducing to you Luke Frieden who has a phenomenal career background in Luxembourg. Some of you will know that for much of his professional career he was a cabinet minister, a qualified lawyer by training. He is now partner at Elvinger Hoss. Welcome Luke. Hello. It's wonderful to have you here and trawling through your extensive biography. The one thing that comes up is it's akin to a number of political people here in Luxembourg. So you started out with law training and then turned to a very long political career where you were Minister of Finance, Minister of Defence, Minister of Justice all serving under Jean-Claude Juncker, member of the CSV Christian Social People's Party. So tell me, first of all, why does law qualify you so much, it seems, across the world, in fact, for so many politicians to be a good politician? Well, I think that the law is always the expression of political choices, because what you put in the law is how you organize society, be it the business world, be it the private world, how people live together, all this is in the law and that expresses political choice. And so I think, therefore, lawyers are a little bit pre-qualified to become politicians. That doesn't mean that you need to be a lawyer to be a good politician, but I think it helps, especially if you are in areas such as mine, which were, as you mentioned, justice, finance, financial services, where a lot comes out of the law that you create. You create the framework of the activities that shape a country. And then I must say that I've always been interested in organizing, in issues that lead to organizing a society. Already as a student, I think that it was a quite natural path, although it was not maybe what I thought about when I was in school. And yet, I think that political topics were always of high interest to me in my in my studies. So... As you mentioned, uh, law is about creating frameworks for society to organise society as best as one can, given we have a range of people living in one place. You were in charge of so much to do with the economy. You were there when there was the introduction of the euro. You helped shape the European Banking Union's stabilisation of the eurozone. I can go on. You served as governor of the World Bank for 15 years, acted chair of board of governors for IMF. So much economics there too. How did you switch your brain to cope with the economic understanding you would have needed to have for functioning in those roles? I was a business lawyer. I was practicing business law before entering the world of politics. So I was pretty close to that world by advising companies since I left uh, university. I must also say that I studied both in Paris and in the US business law. So these were not two different uh, worlds. Again, there you need, you can create wealth in a society if you put in place the appropriate legal framework. And that has been my goal. And I think that's what I achieved what we achieved because you never do anything alone, but as a minister, you lead certain things. And I think the the fact how we moved from 98 when I entered government until 2013 when I left it, the Financial Services Center for which I was in charge changed completely, it created so many jobs in Luxembourg, so many companies in the ecosystem of that financial services sector. And therefore, I think the law was a good tool to achieve that. But at the same time, a political vision, an ambition uh, to develop this country to a service economy 
which fits to a small country like ours. It was not like being a student, then a lawyer, then a politician. In my view, this was always yeah, a normal path to go, or quite logical paths to go, even if, of course, there are always, you know, you can't plan everything. I was sitting in my law firm as a young lawyer when I got the phone call by then Prime Minister Jean-Claude Juncker said, I will make a government reshuffle and I want you to serve in my government. I was 34 then. But I was already in Parliament at that time. You were one of the youngest ever, I believe, at the age yes. of 30. Yes, because I was always interested in politics. By the way, when I was a student, I was a broadcaster. I did broadcast on RTL from the various places where I studied on political topics. And so therefore, the politicians who already at that time were in government, including former Prime Minister Jacques Santer, then Prime Minister Juncker, they knew already about me. They had heard me on the radio. So radio was, to some extent, also a way to deal with politics, but also for the voters and for politicians to know me at that time. And I think that led also to the electoral success that I had uh, since the first elections in which I participated in 94, because it was in 94, at the age of 30, that I was elected to Parliament. Well, welcome back to RTL. <laughs> and this is your first interview with RTL today. So we are... That's right, that's right. Very, very... Enjoy it very much. Very happy to have you here, even though you have <laughs> a very long history with RTL. What was it like to serve under Jean-Claude Juncker? It was great because he allowed me to do a lot on my own. So he intervened only on... On rare occasions, he entrusted me with departments that I enjoyed very much. Justice, you know, I came, I, I was a lawyer, so I felt at home in the Justice Department. And at the same time, since of the beginning, because in Luxembourg, because it's a small country, you quite frequently, you combine different uh, ministerial portfolios. So I served as Minister of Justice, but at the same time, I was Minister of Budget and Minister in Charge of Financial Services. We call that Minister of the Treasury. And that allowed me through the budget to get to know the entire aspects of the social and political life because the finance minister, the budget minister is the one who has to approve almost every expenses of the state. So that was a very good school and I enjoyed that very much. It was a lot of work. It was tough at times because uh, you're also the one who has to say no to a lot of requests from uh, citizens or other ministers, but that's the way how to get to know the, the country. I can imagine it's quite exciting holding the country's wallet, so to yeah. speak. <laughs> and the party that you've been a lifelong member of, CS Christian Social People's Party. What do you think of its development over the years since you haven't been a minister? Well, first of all, the party is a Christian democratic party, so it's part of the European People's Party in the European Union. For foreign auditors to be able to set this party on the political scene, it's a centre party, a centre-right party. It has been a party that shaped this country for almost a, a century because it was, and that's also the reason why I joined it, because it was in between the Liberal Party, which at the time was a um, rather small party only in charge or only dealing with economic issues, and the Socialist Party that was on the other side of the spectrum. And this party, in my view, was in the middle between those two. That's one of the main reasons why I chose that party. I think today the landscape has changed substantially. The people in this country have changed substantially. We might come back to that. I think the, the country that I knew as a child and as a young minister is a completely different one. And therefore also today, I think all the parties, including the Christian Democrats, have to reset 
their own agenda. What does it mean today? I think the liberals became more social. The socialists lost a lot of their initial objectives, which was to defend the rights of the manual workers. The manual workers have become much less numerous today. And the Christian Democrats, which were in the middle linked to the more conservative circles, those do not exist in that context anymore. And the Green Party didn't exist at the time. or was a rather minority left-wing party. All that changed. And so today, I think all the parties, including my own party, have to redefine their political, yeah, their program and to say, what do they stand for in this new world in which there are new issues that come up? We are service economy. 80% of Luxembourg economy is services, which was completely different when I was a child. I was born in the south of the country. My father worked at the steel industry and all the parents of my friends, or almost all of them, they all worked in the same company, which was Arbet, which is today ArcelorMittal. Today, that doesn't exist anymore. ArcelorMittal, of course, exists, but I mean the fact that all the parents work for the same employer does not exist anymore. And so the, the social environment changed a lot. Same is true for the, for the population. When I was born, I was born in the 60s, <laughs> so it's... Um, A while ago, but not that long ago, the country had 300,000 inhabitants. Today, we are about 650,000. In addition, the commuters from the three neighboring countries who come to Luxembourg increased in a substantial number. It was about 20,000 when I was born. It's 200,000 today in rough figures. So that is a completely different country unfortunately uh, a different country because it's it's much more open it's much more international it's much more developed it's much richer and that creates challenges for the political parties it creates challenges for all of us and uh, i think that makes luxembourg so unique we will move on to luxembourg as a country and its changing shape landscape in the decades since you were born in the south of luxembourg would you like to re-enter politics I think I'm still doing politics, but in a non-partisan manner, because politics is not just being in a party and sitting in parliament or in government, but as chairman of the Luxembourg Chamber of Commerce, I'm dealing with political issues. Politics is about organizing society. And so the Chamber of Commerce in Luxembourg, unlike in some other countries, is the official representation of all Luxembourg companies. So by law, we represent uh, the companies and all Luxembourg companies are obliged to be a member of the Chamber of Commerce. So in that sense, we are talking to the government, we represent the business view vis-a-vis the government and so I'm still doing politics. And then I also think that sometimes you need to do something else. Uh, I was 15 years, which is quite a long time, member of government. I could do a lot of things and we were ejected from power in 2013, which is uh, in a democracy, nothing so abnormal. The circumstances were a little bit special because we were, and the Christian Democrats still are, the largest party. But again, there were other parties who formed a coalition. And so then I decided rather than to do nothing or to sit there and just observe, to um, go back to my previous life. And uh, I was very lucky to, when I left government, that uh, I could choose between quite a number of offers, which I got from the private sector, which was nice. It was difficult to switch. I must confess that was very difficult. But I thought there's still a lot that I can do. First of all, by the way, after leaving government, I went to London for three years because I thought it was very good to 
make a break and to uh, disappear a little bit from the public light, so to become a real private person because nobody knew me when I walked through the streets in London. So that was a good break. And then I got new offers again in Luxembourg and I moved back in uh, 2016. So I can imagine use the word ejected from power. That's a strong word. How did that affect your ego? I use that strong word because that's how it happened. Because on the um, the evening of the election, we did not imagine, and I certainly as a person did not imagine that the next day I would not serve in government anymore because I had quite an exceptionally good uh, election result and uh, Christian Democrats were by far the largest party. So it came a little bit as a surprise that three parties, which was the first time in history that three parties created a coalition. Usually we had, uh, well, we always had two parties who formed a coalition due to our political and electoral system. So one party cannot govern in Luxembourg, but it was usually two. So here, three smaller parties united against one party. So in that sense, it was it came as a surprise. This being said, again, in a democracy, I think that's normal, but you need to adjust a little bit, you know. It went okay. I, I must say after a few days, I said, okay, that's it. So what's next? And uh, that's why I could cope with it uh, quite well. Did it create any ill will, any ill feeling in you against the people who are now in power in what was your position? Mm -hmm. And how have you managed to overcome that feeling in order to have this role of neutrality as chair? As you said, you have a number of positions, but perhaps I'm thinking mostly of the chair of Luxembourg Chamber of Commerce, because you have to deal with the politicians all the time. The fact that I left Luxembourg that I did not enter the opposition in the Luxembourg Parliament, which was a choice which was difficult and which some of my voters did not understand, made that easier. But I said at the time, I'm not made for the opposition. That was a sentence which was heavily criticized. And I understand now why these people were disappointed that I did not serve in the opposition. But why did I not do it? Because I did not want to operate in a critical opposition mode in a state of frustration for all those years. And that made it for me much easier to switch the button. And again, I think that those who are in power are in power in a democracy. They have a majority in parliament. I know many of them and I can interact with them quite well. I can live with that quite well since uh, the beginning. And I think they can live with that as well quite nicely. So we interact a lot and there are no bad feelings there. Because, again, I think if the situation changes, you have to adapt. And it doesn't make sense just to start uh, crying over spoiled milk. It happened. It was a democratic process. And so you need to, to move on. And then again, I think that what makes Luxembourg special is that we all, in all political parties, at least in the, all the major political parties, we want the prosperity of this, of this country. There are sometimes different, you know, you put some more weight on one or the other issue. But fundamentally, our political parties are not that different. And they became even less different. And I go back to what we said earlier. I think 50 years ago, and even more at my parents' time, there was much more an ideological divide. Those who were for the church and against the church. But today, you see that a lot of the laws are also supported by all political parties. And the differences became much less important. Taxation might be one of those issues where there is some divergence. The recent discussions around uh, new industries coming to Luxembourg are 
difficult decisions where maybe some parties are more in favor of industries in Luxembourg, others are opposed. How much emphasis do you put on the environmental objectives? How to find the balance between industry and economic development on the one hand and environmental issues on the other hand? So there are political differences, but I think overall, this is a country that is looking for consensus. And if I look sometimes at the political debate in other countries, <laughs> the US right now, also the UK during the, the Brexit debate, this is something that I could hardly imagine for Luxembourg. I think that's one of the strengths of this country and also explains its political and economic successes, stability and economic growth over the past 50 years or more. I can understand why some of the people who voted for you would have wanted you in opposition as you've just spoken to us now. You're a very eloquent professional speaker. It's very important to have a strong opposition, but perhaps you feel you can still have that voice in other ways in Luxembourg. I don't feel as being a member of the opposition because I, um, when I was elected as chairman of the Chamber of Commerce, because you are elected there, I find it extremely important to have a political neutrality. And I am committed to that, and therefore I do not attend any political party event. I do not interfere in party political uh, debates, and I intervene in a party political neutral way on issues that are important for the economic development of this uh, of this country and i that's a very important principle for me and i observe that strictly since i was elected to the to the chamber of commerce and that will stay like that i completely accept your neutrality and that has to be the case for your chairmanship of the luxembourg chamber of commerce and other roles that you hold still you have been continue to be a member of csv You also mentioned in great depth that a lot of the parties have come to become more akin to one another, more like one another. Do you feel your party should drop the word Christian or do you feel it's really intrinsic to its values? First of all, I don't, I shouldn't give lessons to the party if at the same time I say that um, I'm in a, in a neutral uh, position. I also think that words do not matter that much but um, I think words uh, do matter in in this <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, but in, in this context you know I I don't think that parties should change their names all the time like in France you know at every presidential election you have um, a new party the party of the president changes the name all the time I think it's very difficult for voters to understand where you uh, stand I think that it's um, what is more important is that the program adapts to the changing reality of uh, the country. And by the way, I think that the Christian values are values that are a little bit part of the history and of the reality of, of this country. You can call them humanist values. It's les valeurs judéo-chrétiennes, as we would say. So the Jewish-Christian values are part of this history, whether you believe or not. And I think that is what it reflects a little bit much more than um, being part of one segment of of a church or so. I think it's much more a matter of principles, which is, I think, largely shared in this part of the world. Moving to Luxembourg, you mentioned, it's clear also to many people who've studied a little bit of the history of this country, the landscape has changed dramatically since your father was working in the steel industry. You grew up in the south of Luxembourg. Then during your time, you saw the pivot to financial services. 
Now it probably needs to pivot once more as a country. It is a very small country. The growth of foreigners, 10 to 15,000 per year. We've got a housing crisis. It's The cost of housing has increased 50% in the last five years. Wages can't keep pace with that. So huge amounts of change. What's the consequence of all of this? What do you think Luxembourg needs to do to retain its holding within, within Europe? First, I'm rather optimistic about the future of Luxembourg because it managed to make these changes. Because these changes are the result of, of a clear political ambition, which was mine at the time, also to make sure that this country would grow and to increase thereby the standard of living of the people. We could easily have stopped this path of growth because if you, we would have been less business friendly, increased taxes, this would not have happened. This happened because it was a strategy. It was a strategy to move from steel to financial services. We implement quite a number of laws which made sure that the whole ecosystem of financial services became so important. We thought cross-border in everything we did. And that explains why all these foreigners came here, all these companies, the law firms, the audit firms, the consulting firms, they created thousands of jobs, which benefited also those who do not work in those sectors, i.e. the civil servants. The consequence of that, of course, was that we had to deal with the infrastructure. And I think there we were not fast enough because we became a little bit a victim of our own success. The mobility problem that uh, we face, the uh, housing problem that we face, is a consequence of an economic uh, success. Yet, on the other hand, I see that despite the fact that everybody is complaining about the housing prices, they continue to buy and rent these houses. If you look at the number of cranes that you see everywhere standing, people continue to come, people continue to buy, people continue to rent. and um, But we have to. We have to live somewhere. Yes, but if people would not come anymore because they say it's too expensive or we live abroad, the prices are a result of, of the demand that is there. And this demand is still strong. And I think what we have to do is to build much higher, to build a little bit more closer together and to at least for part of the population to create more and faster social housing. We talk about that, the government talks about that, but that goes much too, too fast. I think there are ways to do this, and that means to increase the offer, whereas what we did in the past, we supported people with subsidies to buy, but that did not have the right effect. So I think today we have to increase substantially the offer, and then we will also manage to, to handle that difficult situation. I recognize that it's a difficult situation for many people, but... You know, what is the alternative? The alternative is to stop growth. Then you have less cars and you have less of a housing problem. But at the same time, you have a huge problem in financing the salaries of uh, the civil servants and others to finance the pensions. Because, you know, if you create so many jobs, you also need to create to pay the pensions of those who, who retire. And our pension system is built on a system where those who work now pay the pensions of those who worked before them. So that requires us to continue to build on a model of growth. And that's a huge challenge for this country. When I say I'm optimistic, it's because I think that our service industry is quite successful. Because, as I said, we have a spirit of cross-border activities. Look at what happened as a consequence of uh, Brexit. A lot of companies chose Luxembourg 
especially in the area of uh, financial services and asset management, to leave London, come to Luxembourg. They went to Dublin, they went to Luxembourg, they went to Frankfurt. But Luxembourg got quite a big part of that. Again, that is because Luxembourg is business-friendly, it thinks cross-border, it has the right tools in place to use Luxembourg as a gateway to the European market. And I would like this to stay like that because it's the guarantee for our social success also. Because if you don't get this income, you cannot distribute the money to the people to keep the standard of living that they got used to. You talk about the growth and pensions. You mentioned pensions and the huge increase in numbers, the population increase since you were born. You mentioned the figure of 300,000 as being the population back then. Many of the residents here now are foreigners, about half the population roughly, I think. Many of us don't yet have Luxembourgish citizenship and can't vote. Those who can affect change are the voters. Do you think any changes should be made there, given that pretty much half the population are non-Luxembourgish? First of all, I think that um, we can be very lucky to have all these foreigners in Luxembourg, because this makes Luxembourg so unique. You know, because 600,000 people would be a provincial town somewhere in Europe. We are not because we have all these foreigners, by the way, not only working in financial services, but also working in the European institutions. Um, And we are very lucky and we fought for that to have these European institutions in Luxembourg. Now all these people indeed are not voters. And I see and I always saw that challenge. In fact, 70% of the working force in Luxembourg does not have the right to vote, which is, in Europe, absolutely unique. Seeing this, and at the same time recognizing that the right to vote in parliamentary elections is a fundamental right that is linked to a citizenship in every European country, we introduced, when I was Minister of Justice, the concept of dual citizenship, which was a difficult political project at the time, because some countries, in particular Germany at that time, rejected that idea of the dual citizenship. The goal of the dual citizenship was to make sure that the numerous people who came here, in first phase, the children of Portuguese immigrants who grew up here, who speak our language, that they could choose to become Luxembourgers, yet at the same time keep the nationality of their parents and grandparents, which is part of their culture, of their DNA. And I think, therefore, that Becoming a Luxembourger today is the appropriate tool to become also a voter if you choose that that is what you want to to do. This is a free choice and I think that that's probably the best you can do to integrate the foreigners who want to stay here for a longer period of time. I think it's not an ideal situation to have half of the population or more and certainly more than half of the working population that does not have a right to vote. I would, however, nuance that a little bit. They are, for instance, represented by the Chamber of Commerce, by other organizations, so they can have their voice heard. But I think for those who really want to participate in political activities, the dual citizenship can be an appropriate answer. Well, we'll park that there because we know (laughs) it means we need to spend more time learning Luxembourgish and various other things like this, which, of course, is very important for integration. It's essential. That was an important point in that law, which was, again, also criticised at the time. Our worry was that not that people would not speak Luxembourgish, but that they would speak 27 different languages and they could not communicate with each other anymore. You know, if we would have said 
Luxembourgish and English, or Luxembourgish and French, then I think we could have achieved that as well. But if everybody speaks his own language, I think it's very difficult to create the community that you need to have in a country to have a certain common objective. Because what makes a nation? It's common history, it's a common future. And a nation can be opened to others, but they need to integrate in some manner. And the language, especially at school and in social activities, the language is very important. I saw that my kids are very active sports people. My daughter was playing basketball, my son football. You need to have a common language also among the parents who sit there and watch their kids. And therefore, the language helps to integrate people into the social spirit of the country and of the nation that is evolving. I imagine the common language for your children growing up was obviously Luxembourgish. My children speak a lot of languages because my wife is Dutch. Ah. But as a dual nationality also, dual citizenship, I think that's also something that people coming from abroad always find amazing. The fact that he speaks so many languages, my children speak Luxembourgish, Dutch, German, French and English, which they consider to be quite natural, like many other people in this country. And I think also that again makes Luxembourg so unique. And that's why probably also so many foreigners feel at ease in this country, because we do not exclude by the language, but we try to speak Uh, their language. And thank you very much for that. It helps me enormously. <laughs> Moving to Luxembourg in Europe, you did mention Brexit. You also lived in London for three years, you mentioned. And also, of course, you lived in Cambridge when you were studying there for a year, or a year I think it was. That's right. Yes. Well, well, I hope you had fun in London and Cambridge. Brexit has come along. What are your views on that? First of all, I liked very much living in the UK because it was my free choice to go there both times, both as a student in Cambridge and later in London. I still have difficulties in understanding exactly what happened there because we live in a world where there are so many issues that no country can deal with on its own. Security issues, the fight against fundamentalism, ecological issues, the climate doesn't change at the border financial issues. So you need to, to work together. And therefore, I have um, difficulties in understanding that uh, people move away from each other, turn to themselves. You know, I think it's an illusion of sovereignty that Brexit reflects a little bit. If you say you take control of your own laws, of your own finances, of course, everybody wants to do that. But it doesn't work in practice. And the British will see that. Of course, you can have different structures than the European Union. But look at Switzerland. They have huge number of agreements with the European Union because otherwise they cannot function. They need to have links to their neighbors. And so therefore, I think that Brexit was to some extent against the course of history. Now, of course, and you know that much better than I do and all the English who are listening to us, the British relationship to the European Union was always a complicated one. They weren't there when we started. They joined in the 70s. Then they had immediately again a referendum of whether they should really stay in. So this has always been a complex relationship. And now that it has happened, we have to build the future like we did with with Switzerland, with, with Norway, with other, we have to find a way to interact together because I would like future students from Luxembourg also to study in the UK. I would like uh, British to come and work and live in Luxembourg. I think we will find a way, but it's a lot of energy, a lot of time that got lost prior to the referendum and uh, since then. So I regret it. We have to accept it, but it's, uh, it remains difficult to understand from a Luxembourg perspective and from a personal perspective, because I must also say that 
What amazed me always was I was sitting, as you, as you said, for 15 years in European Council of Ministers. I know quite a number of European, uh, British ministers in justice, home affairs on the one hand, and in the chancellors of the Exchequer. I, I survived many of them, and they were all brilliant. Their civil servants were brilliant, and they achieved so much. So a lot of EU laws, especially in financial services, have really a UK DNA. So we copied almost sometimes British laws because the British financial services sector was so strong. And all that they gave out of their hands because they didn't speak about it sufficiently in their home country. This is a Luxembourg view. So maybe some of the listeners will not agree with this, but I wanted to share that because we often said, wow, the British really did well. They achieved exactly what they wanted. And now they give that up. Because that's also why I think that Luxembourg is so strong, because we are small, we know that. But we sit at the table with the 27 others and around the table, so it gives us so much more power just to sit at the table of the European Council. When I drove to Brussels, like other colleagues as well, you meet these ministers. If you are not at the table, you don't know what's going on. You cannot influence the process. And I think that's what... Other countries like Switzerland, like Norway, often regret because they have to accept some of the rules, but they are not there when the rules are being decided. And we sit at the table, which gives us a network of people we can call. You know, you have all these phone numbers of the other ministers and you are part of the decision making process. Thank you for that, that wonderful mini lecture on Brexit. It's it's very poignant and it's very lovely to hear about the brilliance of the civil service in the UK, which is well known. It, it is it is a wonderful civil service there. Very clever people working there. Moving to Luxembourg's role in Europe, you have sat at that table despite the size of Luxembourg. Do you feel Luxembourg is taken seriously in Europe, despite its size? Do you feel Luxembourg can give a lot to the EU and can continue to be a powerful spokesperson within the EU in the future? And we're about to probably enter a global recession. So how do you feel Luxembourg can help Europe right now? The fact that three presidents of the European Commission since the creation of the European Economic Community, the European Union today, three presidents of the Commission were from Luxembourg, which shows that Luxembourg is taken seriously because it is a small country, a country that is considered to be neutral on many aspects, and therefore I think we can be a broker on many of these issues. Secondly, I think we have a duty to contribute to the future success of Europe because it brings us all peace, stability and economic growth because even if we are, all of us, sometimes unhappy with some of the decisions because they are watered down, because the compromises take so much time, we need to make sure that this stability and this economic success that we all have, despite difficulties, remains a European common project. Therefore, I think we, as one of many, have to contribute to that. What changed a little bit is, of course, from a Luxembourg perspective, that Europe is today much bigger than it used to be. When I started, we were 15, now we are 27. We will be 30 or more when the Western Balkans join. This will happen in the next five to ten years. Obviously, then your voice becomes a little bit smaller. And yet, I think what we have to do in Europe... And Luxembourg has to play a role there. 
is that we can probably not move ahead with 30 at the same time on all of the issues. What will happen more is what we have seen with the euro, what we have seen with Schengen, that there are some areas where a number of countries consider that on that issue we need to move on, that they decide, let's go for it, leaving the door open for others to join later. But if we wait until all of the 27 or more have agreed on something to move on, I think then we will not make progress anymore. And I think the voice of Luxembourg can be to help shaping that debate about where is the real added value in which areas for our continent. And I think there are areas like that where without Europe we would not make any progress. Luxembourg is, and Europe is so small, and all the countries in Europe are so small. If you look at what happened in the rest of the world, China, the US, where's the voice of a small country there? But the voice of Europe can be heard. The voice of France, of Germany, of Spain, of Belgium, of Luxembourg will not be heard vis-à-vis those uh, major economic and political powers. That's why we need more Europe. You're also, just moving slightly laterally, you're also chairman of BIL, Banque Internationale Luxembourg. Who owns this bank now? This bank is a real old Luxembourg institution, which was always owned by uh, foreigners, which always played, however, a big role in financing Luxembourg companies and um, person, and therefore it represents about one-third of the market share of the Luxembourg Universal Banks. It is owned today 90% by a Chinese industrial conglomerate and 10% by the state of Luxembourg. You mentioned having this European voice to talk, to go up against these big powers of the US perhaps, and China, which is a growing voice on the global stage. As part of Europe, there are certain rules and regulations about what sort of relationships one can forge beyond the European borders. How does that sit for Luxembourg and the growing bonds it is forming with China? Because there is a strong Chinese community in Luxembourg. I think we have to realise that China is a reality of the 21st century. China was always there, but we ignored it a little bit. And then we saw China as a country... I don't know that we ignored it. It it wasn't very open to the rest of the world. That's true. And it was then, first of all, for us, a country that was manufacturing our products, our phones, the toys of the kids, and everything came from, from China. In the meantime... China has become a country that has developed its own technology, has become quite rich because, you know, we bought the products that were produced there. So we created, we contributed to their wealth. And they, of course, exporting now both their technology and their wealth. And I think we can have two attitudes. One is to protect ourselves in a way that I think will not work or we cooperate with them. And I think we do much better if we realize that this is a major world economic and political power and that we try to build economic and bonds and other political bonds with China without neglecting our historical partners to which we owe so much, which are the United States. I don't think that we have to choose between our historical ally, the United States, and China. But we have to realize, and I think that explains a lot of these trade wars also between the US and China, 
China has risen as an economic power and I would add as a political power substantially during the past 20 years. And we have to adapt to that reality. And that's why I think we should not be afraid of Chinese investments. We should deal with them on an European level. And we should, of course, in all our trade negotiations and others, always ask them to be treated fairly. That is to say that if they can invest in our countries, we must also be able to invest in their countries. And then there might be some sectors of the economy that we want to protect. But then we should protect them not only vis-à-vis -vis the Chinese, but also vis-à-vis -vis other countries. I'm thinking particularly of strategic sectors that are extremely relevant, energy and so on, for the sovereignty of, of Europe. But in general, I think we should have an open mind towards foreign nations, all of them, including China. That's also, by the way, why the Chinese are so present in Luxembourg. You mentioned that. I brought a number of Chinese banks to Luxembourg, my successor, the Minister of Finance, is continuing that because they were looking towards Europe. And I went there more than 15 years ago and I visited all the chairmen of these large Chinese banks and they considered Luxembourg to be an interesting entry gate where they were treated fairly to enter the European market. And that's why ICBC was the first one, then the others all followed, but that was a huge effort. We did not say they could do whatever they wanted to do, but as they complied with the rules and as we had a fair, frank and friendly relationship towards China, which I think we should continue to have, we managed to do that. Yet at the same time, we were open and we continue to be open to our American friends. Amazon, PayPal, that was the first fintech that I approved before my time, DuPont and Goodyear in the industrial sector. So I think we should, as an open economy, keep the very strong relations with our historic partner, the U.S., and try to build good relations with China. That's a wonderfully neutral political answer. <laughs> when you were opening the doors for the Chinese banks here, how did your ministerial colleagues on the phone, you said you have the hotline to all of them, did they talk to you about this? Did you have discussions about security, for example? You mentioned that word earlier too, which of course is very important for, for all countries, for all citizens. They were jealous that Luxembourg succeeded where they had failed because I think they, despite some public statements, they all would have liked to have the headquarters of those banks in their own country. <laughs> well, I'll just park that for a moment. I was recently at the American embassy and there was one speaker there who spoke at length about the Chinese. And it is on the record that Donald Trump does not have friendly relationships when it comes to industry ideas or security, perhaps, with the Chinese. How do you feel about this tension building in the world right now? First of all, you can have good relations with a country where you don't share the views on the political system. So I think that is a first point which is important to make. But I also think that good trade relations help to improve the geopolitical atmosphere. So I'm strongly opposed to trade wars and anything similar to that. You can make your point heard. You can say, I do not agree with this or that, but you should do it in a civilized manner. And therefore, I think that the trade wars that were started are not the right answer to building a future good relationship with other countries in the world. Secondly, I do understand why, in particular, the US is worried about China, because they see a new competitor coming that wasn't there 20 years ago. And so this is a natural reaction when you have a competitor next to you. How do you deal with that one? I would, however, hope that Europe, China and the US could 
together develop a model, both in politics and economic topics, where they would have a much more cooperative spirit. And I think that is possible. And I hope that in Europe and in the US, that will become the majority view. I think that's easier probably in Europe than in the US, because this aspect of competition plays a lesser, a lesser role there. Luke Frieden, thank you so much for your time. We've discussed a whole range of topics. I could go on, and I'm quite sure you could too, for many hours. Is there any final thoughts you would like to leave our audience? First of all, it was great to be on this podcast. And I would like to say to the foreigners that come to Luxembourg that this is a place where there have never been any major issues with foreigners coming. And I think that's so unique. Maybe because the integration of those who came to us often came through the economic world so they found their way more easily than in other countries where people were looking for a job or came for political reasons so the integration was quite smooth but it was not only an issue of integration it was also an enrichment for our country and one of the reasons why I came back after having studied in France the UK the US was that I liked this international atmosphere of Luxembourg and that became even much better the last 20 years. And so therefore this enrichment due to the foreigners that came to Luxembourg is something that I would not like to miss. And I hope that they feel welcomed and that they feel also that they make a real contribution to the country, even if they do not have the right to vote. But I think there are more of living together than just doing politics together. So I think we can be very fortunate to have so many of them in this, in this country. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.